Good afternoon to you all. I'm Ben Primer, Associate University Librarian for Rare Books and Special Collections, and I'm here to welcome you to the Hogarth uh, Midnight Modern Conversation. Uh, I, this event has, is sponsored by the Friends of the Princeton University Library, by the Princeton University History Department, by the Princeton University Center for Arts and Cultural Policy Studies, and there will be a reception once we're finished at Firestone Library where you can see the exhibition if you haven't already seen it. Um, our speakers today will be introduced by James Stewart, who is the director of the Princeton University uh, Art Museum. And, but he's here today as under his hat as uh, lecturer on 18th century European art with the Princeton University Department of Art and Archaeology. It's all yours, James. Thank you. Thank you, Ben, and thank uh, all of you for coming. William Hogarth has been described variously as one of the first proto-modern artists, a pioneer of sequential art, a founder of the English school, and one of the most probing satirists in the history of Western art. He's indeed one of relatively few artists whose name has taken on an adjectival form so that certain modes of political illustration are still termed Hogarthian. Ambitious and aspirational, Hogarth lived, as we know, in an age when art became increasingly commercialized and for the first time viewed in shop windows, taverns, and public buildings, as well as being sold in print shops. Old hierarchies were breaking down, new cultural forms flourishing, the ballad opera, the bourgeois tragedy, and especially that radical new form of fiction called the novel, with which authors such as Henry Fielding found great success. In this context, Hogarth hit on a new idea, what he termed, quote, painting and engraving modern moral subjects, to treat my subjects as a dramatic writer, my picture was my stage. Hogarth first made his reputation on the back of the modern moral subjects of the 1730s, works such as A Harlot's Progress and A Rake's Progress, that earned him a reputation as a great and original genius. His work of the 1740s is often considered to be his most accomplished, and no less a commentator than William Makepeace Thackeray, himself no mean constructor of complex narratives, summed up the message of the Marriage a la Mode series this way. The care and method with which the moral grounds of these pictures are laid is as remarkable as the wit and skill of the observing and dexterous artist. Moral, don't listen to evil silver-tongued counselors. Don't marry a man for his rank or a woman for her money. Don't frequent foolish auctions and masquerade balls unknown to your husband. Don't have wicked companions abroad and neglect your wife, otherwise you will be run through the body and ruin will ensue and disgrace and Tyburn. He's often characterized as a profoundly English artist, perhaps due both to his hopes to elevate the practices of the visual arts in Britain, but also to the fact that he rarely traveled abroad. Of his one attempt to go to France, Horace Walpole tells us, quote, he went to France and was so imprudent as to be taking a sketch of the drawbridge, drawbridge at Calais. He was seized and carried to the governor where he was forced to prove his vocation by producing several caricatures of the French, particularly a scene of the shore with an immense piece of beef landing for the Lyon d'Argent, the English inn at Calais, 
and several hungry friars following it. They were much diverted with his drawings and dismissed him. There, the power of art. Back home, Hogarth immediately executed a painting of the subject in which he represented the French as a cringing, emaciated, and superstitious people. The print later became popularly known as Oh, the Roast Beef of Old England, so much for foreign travel and international diplomacy. When Hogarth came to represent himself, accompanied by his sometime alter ego in the form of his very English pug, and we elected for this occasion to have Hogarth sit among us as a kind of fifth panelist, he shows himself as a learned artist in the company of an English pantheon of sorts, the volumes of Shakespeare, Milton, and Swift. At his death in 1764, his friend, the leading actor David Garrick, composed the following inscription for his tombstone. Farewell, great painter of mankind, who reached the noblest point of art, whose pictured morals charm the mind and through the eye correct the heart. On the occasion of the wonderful Firestone Library exhibition, Sin in the City, William Hogarth's London, Julie Melby has convened this distinguished panel to consider this complex artist and to participate in their own midnight modern conversation, albeit at the hour of 2 p.m., um, with the questions of how modern and how much conversation yet to come. We're delighted to welcome as our panelists, Linda Colley, uh, who is Shelby M.C. Davis, 1958 Professor of History here at Princeton, Mark Hallett, Professor of the History of Art at the University of York, Tim Hitchcock, Professor of 18th Century History at the University of Hertfordshire, and Claude Rawson, Maynard Mack Professor of English at Yale. A word about our format for the afternoon, uh, which will consist of a conversation among these four scholars, which we then hope to open out to encompass our audience before inviting each of the panelists to offer a short coda, if you will, before we conclude. So um, I'm going to uh, lead this off with a, a, a theme for you, and that is a consideration of Hogarth's London. London in the 18th century was obviously a burgeoning city about to become in another uh, 50 years or so the world's largest city. So I wonder if you'd like to talk a bit about Hogarth's London, what he shows us, what he doesn't show us, um, what he wants to tell us about his city, any, anyone. Um, I'm happy to start, although I, I should say, um, as a midnight modern conversation, we really need a bit more alcohol and, uh, and, and fisticuffs <laughs> to go with it. And if you Prostitutes, yes. Uh, there, are, there, are, there are boundaries. Um, I, what, what I would like to say about um, Hogarth in London is that he is very, very selective about um, what he's depicting and that to understand um, how those images work, those incredibly crowded and exciting images, you have to realize that he's really looking, first of all, mainly at the city itself, at the um, commercial heart of the city, um, which in many respects is an old-fashioned, orderly part of what is a burgeoning, early modern city. Um, what he doesn't show you, in some ways, is the slums on the outskirts. This is, if you like, Hogarth as Manhattan, as opposed to, uh, or London as Manhattan, rather than um, London as Queens. And to, to that extent, it is a very, very selective image. The other thing I think one needs to really be aware of is that you know, London in 1750 had perhaps six, 700,000 people, but it was an early modern city. And as an early modern city, 
it was one that was absolutely controlled by, by culture. You know, there were, you know, with, without effective sewerage, without effective water, what you had to do was run a system that was all about culture, that was all about making sure that people actually were orderly. And to that extent, what Hogarth is doing is picking out the disorder against the background of an early modern city that I would argue, although not many people would agree with me, was effectively a very well-ordered early modern system. One thing that I would uh, like to follow on from Tim, what Tim has just said, and I think it's very interesting in relation to the exhibition, is that I think it's important that we remember that in many ways what, what we think of as a single city of London was in fact at least two cities. Uh, one of the maps or prospects that are in the, uh, one of the early ex ex um, uh, objects in the display at the Firestone is of a, a, a prospect of the city of London. And in fact, if you look at it, you'll see that it's actually what we would think of as the east side of London. And then there's a second prospect, which I think Julie has put two or three objects uh, further down the display, which is the cities of we London and Westminster. And Westminster, again, was understood in the period as a very, very different entity. So you have, in fact, two cities, as it were, stitched together to make what we think of as London. And, so, and they both had very, very different characters. And what's also interesting is that Hogarth lived in and worked in a kind of a community and an area which was, as it were, the, 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 the space in between and that connected those two cities up. Uh, what we think of as the area around Covent Garden, Leicester Square, that middle area was, had, its, as it were, one foot in the West End, this great expanding part of the city which was very, in many ways aristocratic and quite affluent with all the great squares that were built in the period and then also had one foot in the old city of London uh, which was understood to be much more mercantile and civic in character and, and was structured still according to much more traditional ways of governing and so he had uh, uh, Hogarth was part of this, uh, the city which was as it were stitched together out of different entities and he was part of a, a, of a middling space which as it were had contact with both the east end and the west end simultaneously and I think that's interesting and I thought this map that was produced as part of the exhibition with all the places uh, where his, his images are supposed to be located is interesting because, in fact, what we see from this map and from all the, the, number, the figures on it is that he's, he's particularly interested in that central area and then will occasionally move into and discuss and represent in his images the, 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 the more aristocratic west end and this, uh, this more traditional uh, east end. We appear to be speaking in line, um, so <laughs> I shall continue this invented tradition. Um, I think we need to think not just of London, but of the society of which London is the capital, uh, because this is very important to what Hogarth does. Uh, because Hogarth presents himself in this very plucky, pugnacious way, in part, he is a great salesperson. Uh, but also because he often figures in the art histories as someone who drags English stroke British art from the margins into something much more serious. Uh, one can focus too much on Hogarth himself. What's very important uh, about Hogarth is that he's born at the right time in the right place place. There's an awful lot of money sloshing around in the society where he lives through. And it's partly that spread of money. It's partly the society he's born in that is helping him do what he does. London is an extraordinary capital because unlike any other capital at that time. It duplicates so many functions. It's the centre of finance and London 
by Hogarth's lifetime is the richest financial centre in the world. Uh, it's uh, the greatest port in Great Britain. It's the centre of government. It's the centre of the court. Uh, it's the centre, crucially, of print, something which is going to be so important to what Hogarth is doing. And although you wouldn't get this impression from Hogarth's crowded images, what's happening in the first half of the 18th century is that the British population is fairly static in terms of number, but trade, finance is burgeoning. So there's more money to go around a fairly static population. As a result, you're getting a growing, let us call it a middle class, uh, as well as an affluent class. And again, that is helping Hogarth do what he does. So London, yes, very important, but think too of the society, uh, the burgeoning polity, and indeed empire, of which London is the capital. I'd like to revert to Mark Hallett's uh, remarks about the city in the east and Westminster in the west, <clears throat> because one of the myths of classic English urban satire is that the citadel of uh, culture, the citadel of polite letters, and the citadel of good courtly manners uh, is in Westminster, where the royal palace is, where the House of Commons is, where polite people live. And the city, which in some ways is the commercial powerhouse, also means the bankers, also means the upstart middle class. It also means inner city, gangs, crowds, and crime that Hogarth spends a good deal of his time, but not all of his time, portraying. And I would quarrel with the suggestion that Hogarth thinks he's portraying the whole of London when he does these scenes, but uh, that's another question. And it also means for writers, the low-class writers, the journalists, the hacks, the party writers, who are identified with garrets, in the inner city as distinct from reputable homes in Westminster. And in uh, one of the greatest English verse satires, Pope's Dunciad, which is a, a kind of travesty of Homer's Iliad, uh, as it were, an Iliad about dunces who are the bad writers, the hack journalists, the people who bring the values of the East into the west part of the city. The west part of cities traditionally is apparently where people in the history of cities tend to gravitate to the better sort, uh, go to the west part, and so the invasion from, uh, from the east is like the invasion of barbarian hordes. It's also a kind of reverse of the journey of the Trojans coming west to found the Roman Empire, and the Dunciad is a kind of inverted uh, odyssey and an inverted uh, Aeneid. Uh, this, the the city is seen as a menace to the polite values of culture and of polite society, as Pope depicts it in a kind of standard posture of satirists. Now, a question that I have that I can't uh, resolve is whose side 
in a way, is Hogarthan, culture or anarchy? Is he siding with the energies of the barbaric raw vitality of all these bad places, including Gin Lane, including Beer Street, which seem to me to be paintings that are, to, to be engravings that are very, uh, uh, very, very difficult to read the exact uh, moral valency of, or is he worried about a spread of barbaric and amoral values to what is trying to be a civilized community? Could, can I get back to a point that Linda made, and, and tie it into to this other, uh, which is, of course, that sex and gin do sell, and that's important. But um, the point about Hogarth is that he is absolutely at that cusp of the print revolution and the fact that he actually comes from a steel and copper plate um, engraving background as opposed to a high, um, high painterly one is I think absolutely evidence of that and reflective of the extent to which he is navigating a very changing economic context that is also technical in terms of how you actually represent images. Can I follow on about this print, about print culture too? Because it's really worth bearing in mind, again, when you go to the show and look at these, these images, that um, first of all, that there was a very, very... There was a real thriving, what we might call a graphic culture in, in London at that time. The centre of the city was crowded with print shops. That's one of the things that we tend to forget. That every 20 yards or so, you'd be encountering a print... You know, in, in certain places around Covent Garden, even around St Paul's too, there'd be print shop after print shop after print shop. They were really a common uh, um, uh, I, you know, uh, uh, place that you'd encounter on the streets. And these print shops would be within themselves. They'd be crowded with prints. Then their windows would be crowded with prints. They'd often have boards on the, on the pavement outside or in the rows outside crowded with prints, OK? And so, and so you'd be encountering the, the, the graphic image over and over again as part of your everyday life in early modern London, uh, early 18th century London. And this, is the, this, is, this world of print culture and graphic culture is ex- absolutely where we have to understand Hogarth's engravings. And, uh, and these are, ing- I mean, we think of Hogarth as, as, in many ways, the great genius of the period, and of course he was. But he was operating as part of a community of graphic artists, of engravers and printmakers, who were producing the prints and importing the prints, and the print publishers importing the prints that would be filling these shops. And as well as the print shops, what you'd also get are coffee houses crowded with regular print auctions. So uh, many of the coffee houses, if you look at the newspapers from the early 18th century, they're crowded with uh, adverts for coffee house print auctions. So you go into a coffee house and you'd see the walls of that coffee house, of the rooms in that coffee house, would be crowded with, again, with engravings and prints. And there'd be catalogues that you'd be able to pick up, and then and there'd be and the prints would be on display for days, weeks beforehand, and then there'd be the auction itself, often taking place over two or three days. So that's another environment in which the graphic image is, is encountered. And then finally, the the, print, the 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 shops of the printmakers themselves, the engravers, tended to have their own premises, where again they would display their own goods, as Hogarth himself did. So it's just it's worth thinking that in this in, in early 18th century London, the the city was crowded with graphic images, and Hogarth had to think of ways of defining himself and distinguishing himself from this mass of other kind of graphic art that was going on around him. Yeah. But doesn't he then actually turn it into oil painting? Well, I mean, I could talk about that too, but okay. I don't... Uh, yeah, yeah I, again, though, I think we've got, as well as looking at London, to look beyond London because a lot of the print culture, mm. which, as Mark's saying, is so important... Um, The British are learning a lot from the Dutch because in the 17th century, Dutch print culture had really been Mm. dominant. Uh, And it's one of the many things 
that's coming in with what is effectively a Dutch invasion of England. Uh, you, you, you have this cliche that um, you know, England isn't invaded uh, after the Norman conquest in 1066. Well, of course, that's not true. There had been a very effective, powerful Dutch invasion in 1688. Uh, the coming of a Dutch monarch who becomes William III, and it's possible, some people think, that William Hogarth was called after William III uh, become, because he comes from that kind of Whig uh, Protestant background. But uh, these Dutch print techniques are absorbed uh, and developed uh, into what the English uh, are doing at this time. And also, there's longer traditions feeding into some of the graphic work that you're going to be able to see at the Firestone. Um, Because all artists doing this kind of work are drawing on a tradition of emblem books, Uh, the tradition of what uh, different animals, different objects stand for in art. And it's one of the ways where we cannot ever take this kind of art as a true rendition of what was happening. Uh, Sometimes a dog may be a dog that Hogarth has observed in the street, but a dog carries all kinds of traditional emblematic significance, and Hogarth is very cognizant of this. And, of course, many of his audience would have been able to read the significance of those emblems. Uh, It's something that we've forgotten and we have to remind ourselves of. I wonder if I could raise a related question that that touches on some of the things that have been said, and that is where Hogarth stands in relation to the changes in society that he's contemplating, and where in particular uh, he stands on the issue of progress. Uh, All his progress pictures are actually about regress. They're about declines of characters and families. And in the... I'm not learned in the literature about Hogarth, but in doing my homework for this event, I was struck by how often people like to talk about Hogarth as a literary painter and how much he's supposed to have taken from or contributed to the novel. And clearly the progress pictures have a a narrative dimension. I don't know enough about art history to know how new this is as uh, something that uh, artists did. But in fact, the progress poem, it seems to me, is a very conservative, the, the progress concept in this period, the progress satire, is a very conservative kind of satire, which assumes that things develop badly. The immediate analogues known to me to the Harlot's Progress, The Rake's Progress, Marriage a la Mode, are not novels. They are poems by Swift and Pope. They are uh, 
The Progress of Beauty, a poem of 1720 about a prostitute who wanders the streets and whose charms fall away from her with age, and she's compared to the moon whose radiance falls away as uh, the month uh, progresses, and the moon can renew forever, but there comes a time when the prostitute will not be able to reconstitute uh, herself prosthetically and cosmetically. There's another uh, poem uh, called Phyllis or the Progress of Love about a very prudish uh, young lady who is the daughter of a merchant who rejects all suitors but finally runs away with a footman or butler and comes to a bad end. They have a quarrelsome marriage uh, and uh, run apart. A very Hogarthian subject before any of the Hogarth pictures, but around the time when uh, Hogarth was uh, uh, beginning to work. And it's worth remembering that the poem that I uh, mentioned before called The Dunciad, which is a kind of lament, is a kind of modern, it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a, an uh, 18th century equivalent of the Wasteland, and the Wasteland is very conscious of Pope's Dunciad, incidentally, Eliot's Wasteland, a poem about the disintegration of the culture. This Dunciad which retails a progress from east to west shows a bad progress that corrupts the west and the poem before it was published as the Dunciad was referred to in correspondence as the progress of dullness. Now where does Hogarth culturally stand uh, in relation to these issues seems to me to be a question we might be interested in addressing. Well, one, one answer maybe is to think of him primarily in relation to the genre of satire. And satire as... Uh, and, and it seems to me that um, the best way to understand so much of his work is through that perspective of satire, which is not actually about necessarily taking sides, but it's about offering a kind of a, an acidic and humorous critique of all aspects of contemporary culture. And uh, one of the things that uh, is very striking about Hogarth's prints that you see um, in, in a display very, very differently in many ways to his paintings, which he operates in a, in a very, very different mode, uh, is a satirical uh, focus and perspective, which often in, in the period took the form of the idea of the, of the, of the individual male uh, uh, figure roving the streets and acting. It's interesting he's arrested as a spy because in many ways a satirist is a spy. It's that notion of someone wandering the streets, operating at ground level. And so many of uh, Hogarth's images are taken from the perspective of someone wandering the streets and, as it were, piercing the, uh, the surfaces, the superficialities, uh, the falsities of the culture and of the representations that surround him. And I think that in many ways that's exactly what um, his, so much of his art seems to take the perspective. It take, and, and so in many ways it is right that to compare him to Swift and to Pope and that notion of a satirical perspective which pierces uh, uh, the, the illusions and the delusions of contemporary culture. And in doing so, what we see him doing over and over again is piercing the spaces of the street, of the surfaces of the street. So looking through windows, peering through doors, checking out spaces that are off the main thoroughfare and seeing the kinds of forms of breakdown and the corruption and the sinfulness that might lie behind the seemingly um, uh, polite, orderly uh, facades of the street. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think that's very important. I, I think it's also important to realise that um, when you look at these wonderful Firestone images, you're, there are many Hogarths and you're only seeing a fraction of his art. Mm. Uh, because he paints many 
portraits. Uh, you can see some a wonderful example in the Frick. Uh, he, he, he's very good at painting women in a, a sympathetic way. Um, and he does genteel conversation pieces, uh, as, as John Barrell has pointed out. But um, in a sense, your, your comment on the satirical eye, I think you can test it even in some of his genteel paintings. Uh, there's one particular painting, um, and I can't remember what it's called. You will, you will know. Um, and superficially, it looks uh, a very genteel, out-of-door painting of two clearly upper-class young couples. Uh, they're seated in conventional poses in a... Uh, idyllic English rural landscape. Um, and one looks at it and thinks, oh, how nice, how pretty. Uh, and then in the background, you see a haystack on which a very different kind of couple are copulating. Um, and all sorts of questions emerge. You know, what, what, what is Hogarth doing here? How, why... Why was he allowed to get away with this in a painting for which he was being paid? Uh, is Hogarth, is this Hogarth's private joke? Uh, perhaps the people who commissioned him didn't notice this. Um, <laughs> is he saying that beneath all the fine clothes and the formalities, uh, these couples are, after all, going to be performing, presumably, that same rudimentary human action? Or is he saying, this is polite courtship, this is how it should be, as distinct from those vulgar peasants who are copulating in the open air? Uh, you, can, you can think about this, because, of course, being an artist, he doesn't write it down. He doesn't say, this is what I mean. But that capacity to observe human behavior in wry fashion at many levels. Uh, as I say, I think it emerges even more strongly in the paintings where you don't necessarily expect it. I, just to follow up on that, and Claude, maybe this will bring it back to your point fundamentally about where Hogarth positions himself in relation to both culture and anarchy isn't that it, indeed part of the richness of his work, that it's fundamentally deeply ambiguous? It, yeah, it's deeply ambiguous, and, and perhaps more important, it's deeply unresolved. Um, I, I think polite courtship in Hogarth, on the whole, sucks. I mean, look at Marriage <laughs> of the Mode. I mean, one of, one of the most vivid of all Hogarth's images are the two plates which show the couple indifferent to each other and bored at the courtship and then after marriage when he comes back from a night out. And if you look at the detail of that, it captures so much the sheer inelegance and the sheer antagonism of a well-dressed, decorous, outwardly uh, respectable pair of people and compared to that it seems to me that a lot of the brothel scenes have a wholehearted humanity that you might really want to consider embracing <laughs> um, 
there, are, there are two kinds of satiric imagination, it seems to me, and I'm not sure quite where to place Hogarth. There's the, 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 the most traditional kind. I mean, all of them take as their starting point the disturbances of life, the, the unruliness of life, the, the uh, depravities and follies of people. But in the most traditional satirical mode which in the West possibly derives from the Roman poet Horace, the poet is adopting an attitude in which he is the wise person looking down on folly and wickedness, taking the reader into his, it's usually his, confidence, and assuming that there's a world of moral values which is above all this disturbance that we can be secure of the rightness of and that we can use as a measuring rod against, against all the bad stuff. And then there's a more radical kind of satire which um, Swift is perhaps the master of which rather assumes that the depravity, all these things that, that the satirists notice, satirists like Pope, like Fielding, like Gibbon, notice, uh, but where the tone of assurance that there are standards out there that we can rely on and that wise people like the author and at least the reader are going to agree about that that doesn't exist, that the world is so disrupted and disruptive that everyone's caught up in this, including you, the reader, including me, the author. Um, something like that poses itself as a conundrum in uh, Hogarth, it seems to me, because you can never be sure what the alternatives to the bad vitality are. There doesn't seem to be a good vitality, and in civilization, the models of good behavior are on the whole lifeless or uh, perverse. So is there a deeply pessimistic vision or is something else going on? I just want to close um, with one other literary analogy, and that's with a novelist Fielding, who is always said to be his good friend. Apparently, there is absolutely no evidence for that. There's, there's a recent article by, by Auger, Frédéric Auger, a French scholar, who says that this assumption is not backed by anything. There are no letters, there's no evidence of personal contact, Fielding is not mentioned in Hogarth's autobiographical notes, nothing like that. They, they refer to each other, they obviously have the same kind of subject matter, they're conscious of each other, no question, they may have met. But two things, uh, Fielding... In his first novel, the, the Joseph, uh, a novel called Joseph Andrews, has a, has a preface in which he describes what he calls the right kind of realistic description that a novel ought to have, where you give a character of persons as they behave in everyday life. And then among the categories he rejects is... One alternative category is caricature, where you, you exaggerate and blow up, and this is not what he does at all. And it is assumed that this distinction was picked up by Hogarth the following year, in 1743, in Caricatures and Caricaturists, where he has 
a whole uh, wonderful series of heads. And uh, at, at, uh, of, of real characters, and then at the bottom, there are a couple of sublime heads and a couple of caricatured heads. It shows uh, a lot of variety. And whether he took the phrase and the concept and the distinction from Fielding or was bouncing off it, I don't know. But the interesting thing about the Hogarth picture, if you if you look at it, is it's absolutely crowded with heads, and they're pushing against the edge, as though there is absolutely no controlling the living energy of all this populated mass of humanity. And that seems to me to be not at all like a writer like Fielding or a writer like Pope, where at the end of the day, all the massive energies of life are actually controlled, framed by the narrators or the artists' perspective. And um, a similar example leading perhaps in a slightly different and more pessimistic direction is the example of the four stages of cruelty where you have three stages in which Tom Nero behaves very badly in typical ways which end up with the death of his lover and then you have a fourth stage, the reward of cruelty, where Nero is punished. And his corpse is, is lying there, and a ferocious surgeon with a ferocious knife is, is going to cut him up. And there's a completely grim, unsmiling judge uh, lowering down on, on, on the scene in in the backdrop, as though justice were itself a kind of cruelty and part of life and not on the side of right. Now, just very briefly, if you look at what happens in Fielding, uh, there are very grim justices, but they're always bad guys, and you feel that they come under the gaze of an ultimately confident and benevolent sense of life, which will say, these are also bad guys and they're to be punished. I'm not sure how Hogarth is doing that. I, I'm wondering if Hogarth is saying, look, people are just bad on either side. I mean, but of course, you know, that, that, that image, that really classic image of, uh, of Nero being anatomized in Surgeon's Hall is also an engagement with precisely where Hogarth was at the moment. I mean, this is following the 1752 Murder Act and the fact that any murderer was going to be anatomized. And it was such a powerful moment within that social history of London that, you know, basically you had, you had riots at the base of Tyburn and it, he was absolutely engaging with a popular culture that thought this was an awful thing. And I think what that says to me is the extent to which Hogarth is swimming in a series of references in a social world that he uses again and again. And it's not simply Fielding or, or, or Pope or the Dunciad. You could also take him back. His street view is in some way reminiscent of, of Mr. Spectator, Addison and Steele, published in um, the 1710s, which you know, takes you down the streets of London, as it were. He also pulls up the cries of London, the first great series 
of European images of street sellers and uses them again and again. Um, I, I would argue that he also uses the picaresque in a narrative um, form and that essentially if, if Maul Hackabout, the harlot's progress, is not somehow um, Maul Flanders and referencing that, I, I don't know how, one, how else one understands that, that, that story and the literary references that he pulls out. So that in some respects it's not I don't think that we're ever going to find a single, a single um, Hogarth or indeed a single moral perspective. What he has is a very wet swim through a cultural tide that's going all over the place. I think, too, and this is part of his genius, uh, and it's sort of emerging from this non-midnight modern conversation, that he... He lends his images to be looked at at various ways. I mean, uh, part of the reason he sold was that at one level he was conventional in that uh, these rise and decline, uh, people being sinful and being punished. I mean, this uh, you know, people were used to these kind of plots in art, in literature, um, and he appealed because he deals in images of sex and physical dissection and luridness, and that has an appeal. But what he also does, and, and this is important in terms of his commercial success, is that his images repay constant looking. And this is very important because although... Uh, print is becoming cheaper at this time. Still, it's, it's an investment to buy a print. Uh, and to persuade people to part with their pennies, uh, you had to give them something, ideally, something that they, they wouldn't get from it just in one glance. But because people would put them on their walls, they would keep them. Uh, and so having an image that you can look at and keep finding different layers of meaning, this is what Hogarth is superbly good at. And, and when you look at the Firestone images, particularly if you're not used to Hogarth, it really does repay looking at them very hard. For example, in the rake's progress, look at the rake's eyes because they never look at you. Uh, in fact, they, the way that the rake is not looking is part of the story, I think. In the first image, uh, the girlfriend that he's betrayed is deserting, leaving pregnant, is beseeching him, but he doesn't look at her. His eyes are vacant. In the second scene, he's when he's rich, he's surrounded by all the people who are wanting his custom, they're a, a, a dishonest, uh, eclectic bunch of people, and he, he isn't noticing them. He's looking actually in the wrong place so that he doesn't see that people are stealing from him. In the brothel scene, he isn't looking when the whores are stealing his purse. And in the last scene, he isn't looking at anybody either because by that stage, he's insane. Um, and you only see that by yourself. You have to look 
because the rake himself does not look at you and does not... And the fact that the rake is not seeing is part of the reason that he comes to the downfall that he does. So these are images that you really have to scrutinise, and I think it's why people valued Hogarth and collected him so much. Yeah, I'd, I'd very much uh, uh, support that, second that. And it is interesting, this issue of looking, because as Linda says, it, uh, these are images which really ask you to look in great, great detail. And, but they're also about looking in the way that Linda just talked about the rake Im- uh, images of being about his lack of um, observation. And it's fascinating, if you go to something like the Industry and Idleness series and you look at the, the imagery, and we're talking about looking, looking at the imagery of Francis Goodchild, the hero, the supposedly uh, positive uh, role model of the industrious apprentice. And the closer you look at those images of him, uh, at least for me, and actually for a lot of others, certainly for the students I teach, uh, the more doubtful one gets about what he's actually seeing. And his, because one of the interesting things about what Hogarth does with uh, the imagery of Francis Goodchild is that he constantly is showing him, as it were, a little bubble in a kind of a polite bubble of space which is separated off from the street and from what's actually going on around him. And so constantly, whether it's in the final image where he's ensconced in his coach or whether he's in his house and only looking through the window and seeing a certain thing where there's a barrier between him and the street. And, and when he actually turns his way, eyes away from Tom Idle in, the just, in this one scene when they come together and doesn't see that because he's turned his eyes away uh, that, things, that corruption is going on, a bribe is being given, that idea of a certain kind of respectability actually bringing with it a loss of sight or a loss of ability to be able to scrutinise the city is really fascinating. Of course, it's always played off against the idea that we, as the viewers of these images, and Hogarth himself, have a kind of perspective, a much more clear perspective, which, as it were, sees around the corners, sees through the windows, sees down at street level, and is able to think about the relationships between the kind of spectatorship that's, as it were, boxed in, separated off in, pol- in a kind of a polite culture, and that that might be taking a place elsewhere. And so there's, there's this play with sight all the time, and, and again, ref- Referring to the thing that Claude was talking about earlier on, about this idea of uh, uncertainty about things like authority and about the figures of, in the anatomy theatre. Even with, with the imagery of the harlot's progress, for instance, this is a satire not only about the harlot, but also about all the men that she comes into contact with, all of whom are shown to be in some way or other corrupted. Uh, and so there's this constant critique against authority uh, alongside uh, this critique of the, of the, of the obvious protagonist. Yeah, I I was going to say, it it, it strikes me as amazing how many uh, of Hogarth's pictures are actually about people not looking at what other people are doing or people doing things like picking pockets or feeling thighs or bottoms, which the other people in the picture don't see. And this leads me to to a reflection I had independently of this, uh, that Hogarth's pictures have seen at least seem to me to be to have been amazingly open to narrative elaboration by, by other people, whether it's Trussler or Judy Edgerton or whoever it might be, revealing things in the pictures that one never saw before, including some of these secret acts that are presumably meant to see, one is presumably meant to notice but doesn't because there are so many of them, but also because I think they are loaded with a degree of narrative content that then encourages all kinds of critical ego trips. Tim, did you? Yeah. No, I, I just wanted to um, note that when you then put it back to the specific moment when these things were being created, I mean, half the figures are real people. 
I mean, so the, the critique and the narrative and, and the reuse of that early 18th century moment is continuous. I mean, so just um, in the Harlot's Progress, Justice Gonson, a reforming justice who was in the middle of, um, of trying to clean up um, prostitution, is, is shown coming through the door. Um, the, you can actually identify as single individuals some of the beggars in the corners of, of, of Hogarth's Prince. Philip in the Tub was a well-known early 18th century London beggar who was noted to go to, go to weddings. And there he is, um, the largest figure selling, selling a ballad, Jess the Happy Pair, um, outside um, um, Goodchild's um, house on his wedding day. And to do that is really rather dangerous, first of all. I mean, people must have been deeply upset. And it also is very visceral and, 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 and specific to that place and that moment. I wonder if, if we, maybe to follow up on some of these points, couldn't say or probe a little bit more deeply about the question of what it is that Hogarth's doing narratively that might be unique. Um, you know, Mark, maybe you could offer a, a little comment starting on the, on the visual narrative front. You know, how, how do you contextualize mm -hmm. him well, I mean, both against question. others who who went before and others yeah. in his own time. We talked a little bit about that, but I think there's much more to be said. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting that the whole idea of a pictorial series, which is often seen to be an invention of Hogarth, of course, is not. I mean, there's there's a long tradition of the pictorial series. I mean, the most famous example of such a series in Britain at the time was Raphael's cartoons, uh, copies of which were hanging in Hampton Court and were studied by pretty much every artist of the period. And so they've been, but they've been seen to be, you know, they've been seen to be a format that had been used for a variety of um, uh, purposes, but particularly, I guess, in that idea of a kind of a high art uh, of historical painting, historical narratives, whether it's from the Bible and mythology or from actual history. Um, but what we see Hogarth doing, I think, with the format is fascinating because he really thinks about the notion, that he knows he's working... He's, right, he's, he's producing series. He's really interested in what you can do with a series. So one of the things, for instance, I'll tell you that I'm fascinated by with, say, The Rake's Progress. I mean, you could say this about every... I mean, all of the series are fascinating, but, say, The Rake's Progress is the way in which, for instance, if you go to look at them after this talk and at, over the next few weeks, you'll see that so many of them have... Uh, of these prints in the, in the 12 uh, images of a, of, a, of a Rake's Progress have doorways at either side of the image. Okay, and so, and so uh, there's lots of things you can say about that. So that you have people coming in and out of the image from left and right. You could say this is very theatrical. It's like the stage where people, you know, it's like a farce where, of course, people are racing in and out of, of doors. What's also fascinating about it in terms of a pictorial linear series is it allows you as a viewer, as it were, to walk through or to look through, as it were, from one scene to another, and it gives you a kind of a passage through the series. So he's using this idea of these doorways as a kind of a metaphor for and a prompt to the idea of moving from one image as it were, you spill out of one doorway from, say, one image, and then you, you, you wander into another. And these doorways provide that kind of metaphor or that kind of aperture out. And again, um, this idea of things kind of spilling out of the sides of the, of the image is something that he does over and over again. Industry and idleness, the way in which he uses... Um, uh, look at this. Uh, the way in which, for instance, um, Francis Goodchild and Tom Idle will be on one side or other of the, of the image, the kind of the virtuous side or the, or the negative side. And the way in which... In the images of Francis Goodchild in, uh, in Industry and Idleness. The compositions of the pictures featuring Goodchild are always dominated by geometry, 
by rectangular, uh, by uprights, by verticals, by a very, a very ordered world. And then what you find uh, in, the, in the images of Tom Idle is that the compositions are sprawling, are broken down, are chaotic, fitting the narratives of decay and breakdown. One of the, again, the fascinating things about it, if you go and look at the Industry and Idleness series, the images of Tom Idle so often have holes, punctured uh, uh, um, places where people can fall through at the bottom of them, um, holes in floors, trapdoors, uh, water, things which people fall into and fall through. And whereas the world of Francis uh, Goodchild seems much more stable and secure with plenty of foundations. And of course, when you look across the series as a whole, he's playing off this imagery of geometry and order against this imagery of breakdown and chaos and chaos. And, and he does that compositionally and formally. So he's constantly playing with the format of the series. I think it's that inventiveness. Um, and that, that's one of the things that, of course, uh, people found so fascinating was that um, he, was playing, he was thinking about the structure of the series right at the beginning of the process and playing with that structure in, in the images he's producing. He's also taking um, long-existing tropes and, as we've said, emblems and artistic tradition and revivifying them by mm. implying, by employing very contemporary characteristics uh, facets of society that haven't really uh, been around much earlier. So uh, in some ways it's a a visual cliché to have falling pottery or ceramics falling down, smashing on the ground as an image of something going wrong. Uh, that, That was there already. But what Hogarth does, uh, both in The Prince and in some of his painting, uh, and of course this is the 18th century, he's using uh, Chinese import pottery, uh, the stuff that's coming in increasingly in East India Company ships. So that this becomes doubly an image of something going wrong, something that we've got to be wary of. Because, uh, And you see that in one of the scenes of the uh, harlot's progress where uh, initially she's set up with a rich keeper, but she can't resist taking a, a more attractive lover as well. Uh, and her rich keeper finds her with her younger, more attractive lover. And just at that moment, uh, her tea set, which is expensive Chinese import pottery, explodes, falls on the ground. Uh, But in a sense, it's, it's, it's the impact of that is doubled by the fact that not only is ceramics breaking, but this is this is exotic, strange ceramics, which underlies Uh, underlines the point that something is wrong in what's going on. So that use of old visual traditions with new references is is very striking, I think. The the rich keeper's a Jew, isn't he? I wonder if something could be said about this. I mean, I don't know what to say about this, but I'd like to hear about it. Uh, Can I I say something about something slightly different, which is that actually... The, the thing that really gets me is that, of course, this is, this is a, well, London in the 1730s and 40s was being rebuilt as a neoclassical center, um, and yet all the disorderly out parishes were still vernacular, 
old-fashioned and not orderly. They were built from clapboard. So that not only is it about the orderliness of wealth versus the disorder of crime, it's about the orderliness of the city, the, the center bit, which was the most highly regulated building, building site in the world at the time, following the Great Fire. Um, so that it, it becomes a map, on, it maps back onto notions of order that gets back to where we were a while ago in terms of the, that, that central city versus the West End um, and Westminster versus um, the out parishes. So that what you have for a viewer in the 1730s when that China um, spills from um, the harlot's table is a new vision of order that is all the more shocking for, for crashing because it is a new vision of order in an otherwise disorderly city. Yeah, I mean it's interesting with that with that uh, with that that scene in the in the Harlot's Progress because the the order that she's aspiring to is 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 one for instance of polite tea, you know, tea drinking and conversation and and that's but it's a facsimile it's 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 uh, it's uh, uh, it's an image which is built up of, of of commodities that have been bought as Linda says and and made seem exotic and 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 that what Hogarth wants to seem to want to do in that that image and in others is to puncture that notion of of a kind of an order that's built it's an artificial order it's built out of commodities it's built out of a of an imported tea set that astonishing wallpaper in that image I don't know if you've seen that which juxtaposed with a merchant's head giving these antlers so he's obviously a cuckold and all this thing but it, and and, the, and these and these these paintings on the wall but I think I think the other thing that is interesting about it for me is whether what Hogarth's art um, is seeking to express, or whether it's seeking to do it or not, or but can be seen to be doing it, is a particular urban uh, uh, perspective, which is the notion. I mean, the thing that I'm struck by, if you go and see these, look at these images within and of themselves, is that they're kind of defined by what I call, and it might sound rather pretentious, an aesthetics of overlap. You, very, you almost never get a single figure standing alone. Right. You never get a single building standing alone. Everything is about juxtaposition, overlap, one thing being overlaid over the other, one thing being compared with. It's about the idea of the montage or about collage. And it's fascinating because one of the most interesting uh, forms of art in the early 18th century were these prints called the medley prints, which are uh, prints which purport to be combinations. They're like collages. They're like early cubist uh, pieces of art. They're astonishing, I think, because they show the overlap of different kind of graphic commodities. And in many ways, when you go and look at Hogarth's prints after seeing these, it's impossible to get them out of your mind. And you get that sense, again, of the city being a place which is all about juxtaposition, which is all about the overlap of high and low, of different kinds of, of, of sign, different kinds. And, and of course, if you think about Hogarth's images, one of the ways and one of the central themes of them are, is the street sign. Of course, that disappears. Uh, uh, these, these streets, but they offer a kind of an emblem of the emblematic nature of the images themselves. Over, if you look at the four times a day, it's crowded with these overlapping street signs, and if you look around the rest of those same images, they're crowded with overlapping buildings with overlapping people, and it's about that idea of what happens uh, when uh, these very different kind of cultures and subcultures are all, as it were, crowded together, mixed together, and then that's also the pleasure that you have as a viewer is disentangling. Uh, trying to interpret uh, all these clashing, overlapping, juxtaposed signs. And, of course, to get back to uh, the, 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 Jewish, um, the Jewish lover in, in, in The Harlot's Progress, I mean, there you have a scene where you have a series of racial overlaps between you know, the black servant, uh, the, the English harlot, and the, 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 the Jewish lover at just the moment when London is suddenly developing a whole range of new communities. I mean, this is also you know, the, the half-century when... Um, one older and established Jewish community that was quite wealthy is being overlain by a new group of, of immigrants from Eastern Europe who are quite poor. 
so that you know the, the the power of that overlap extends not just to the visual but to to the significant signifiers that those visual signs do something with mm. All of these things seem to me to be part of what make Hogarth modern. What do you make of his own sense of these series in particular as modern? Um, I doubt very much that it's necessarily what we value in them for their modernity, that, you know, that he is making images of, uh, of a city in transition where these cultures are coming together side by side with this overlapping, for example. What do you think Hogarth meant about the, them as modern? Mm. So it, it, it's very interesting in relation to what Linda was talking about too, about the way in which you can see these, he is reworking traditions, no question about it, whether Rake's progress is a reworking of a prodigal son, for instance, that whole, you know, that whole, and, and the imagery is so close to it in so many ways. But Hogarth calls them modern moral subjects, so he's not dealing, as it were, only with the traditional moral subject, he wants to make them modern. And it's that, it's that ability, as it were, to be looking forward and backwards at the same time, and that gives them, I think, this kind of richness. I think he did see himself as doing something which is very contemporary, very, very novel, and I'm not talking about it being like the novel, but it is interesting uh, uh, overlap there. And, and, and one of the things, of course, that he's, that's really important just to get down as a basic fact is that he was also seeing himself as, a, as a, an entrepreneur combining a whole range of different practices that would normally have been separated out. Okay? He's a painter, and Lynn's absolutely right to say this. He's a painter as much as he is an engraver, pretty much from the beginning. He enrolls in a painting academy in the same year as he sets up as an individual engraver. He's a painter, and that series of A Harlot's Progress or a Rake's Progress is, a, first of all, a series of paintings. But he paints them knowing that they're going to be engraving. So he's an engraver as well. And in many ways, in these early images, he's producing engravings after his own paintings. So he displays the paintings in his showroom like a painter traditionally would. The people who would be interested in painting would go and see his work, but they'd also be going to buy prints and buying prints as they would in a print shop. And then what he does that's also very new, and, this is, and, and what's modern is this combination of activities, he publishes his own prints. Right? Traditionally, engravers work for print sellers or print publishers. What he says is, no, I'm going to escape the domination and the monopoly of the print sellers. I'm going to do this for myself. I'm going to become a self, uh, you know, self-employed business artist, as it were. And so he publishes the prints themselves. And that's why he's so antagonistic and angry when uh, people start copying his images and producing these uh, you know, bastard substitutes, these copies of his prints. And then he uh, gets a lot of other engravers together and they, they, they work this, they put this through Parliament called the Engravers Act to protect the property of individual artists. So one of the things that makes him very distinctively modern is the fact that he combines the role of the painter, the printmaker, and the print publisher all in one. That obviously gets a very heavy load, and after a few years, especially when he becomes successful, then he starts actually distributing those jobs again around different people. But that's one of the things that defined him as a very different kind of artist to his predecessors. I think, too, uh, what is making him modern, and again, I go back to the society in which he's operating in, is that he knows the market is shifting. He knows that the society in which he's working and which is buying his work is shifting. Um, in, in, in British history, the middle class is always rising um, whatever century you look at, uh, that's a sort of standing uh, truism. But um, certainly what we can call the middling classes were rising uh, in the middle of the 18th century uh, and making possible a different kind of art. And although Hogarth sells paintings to uh, 
rich aristocrats, uh, the conventionally wealthy, who also buy his prints. Um, one of the things he is self-consciously trying to challenge is the traditional elite view of art that the only kind of art that matters is French old masters, Italian old masters, uh, from the kind of continental European countries which have always been associated with fine art. Uh, And one of um, Hogarth's wicked engravings has a monkey uh, wearing a rich brocaded coat of the sort that only aristocrats could afford, watering um, a plant that is plainly dead and the plant <laughs> is labelled French old masters, Italian old masters. And what he's mocking is here are, is an aristocratic monkey still obsessed with these dead continental European old masters, ignoring all this wonderful, new, boisterous British art made by people like me. Um, and uh, he does tend to overdo that. And there's, there's also a conflict within his nature which grows, I think, as he ages because, like all of us, he, he wants to win across the board. Um, and at the end of his career, and this is a very sort of sad episode at the end of his career, um, Hogarth has sort of forgotten almost that he was a sort of rebellious artist wanting to do new stuff. And he becomes obsessed with the idea of doing a, a sort of classical painting in the old master of the manner of a sort of much more conventional topic. Um, and the result, most people think, and certainly I think, is, is something of an aesthetic disaster. Uh, because... At the end of his life, Hogarth also wants to be taken seriously as a certain kind of painter. But for much of his career, um, he does see himself as championing a new kind of art, uh, a more nativist kind of art, catering to the shifting social orders of the society he inhabits. I think this is one of the things that, again, makes him so unusually interesting in the century is that he's doing all those things. But I would maybe slightly re-emphasize the point that you were making, Linda, that he was doing much of that all the way through his career, that he was aspirational for many years. You know, his, his desire to be taken as a legitimate maker of painting uh, of a certain kind, you know, that when he's making these, let's call them grand manner portraits, he's again largely working within a pre-existing framework and not challenging it all that much for a long time. Um, and yet then he allows himself and somehow the culture, as you made the point earlier, allows him to do these things that are also undercutting the very things to which he's aspiring. And the other th- one other thing we, maybe we haven't talked about uh, that relates to all of this, of course, is is that we're dealing, I think he's appealing to a, a particularly interesting constituency, particularly in relation to 
the, the, the urban constituency to which he's primarily addressing himself, which is it's a, very, it's a, it's an, it's a highly literate uh, and unusually politicised and politically uh, involved uh, constituency, and one that um, was very familiar. I mean, I think one, other, one very important aspect of all of this is the, is the rise of uh, not only prints, as in graphic art print culture, but also the things like the newspaper. And, um, you know, the first daily newspapers uh, in, uh, hap- um, beginning in, in, in London, I think on, in 1700 is the first daily newspaper. But this idea of a, of a, of a world of, of, of newspaper culture. And if you go through, look at those newspapers from the early 18th century, as all of us have to do as part of our professional lives, is that you'll be astonished at the kind of range of different kinds of uh, product that's being av- that are being advertised, including print. So Hogarth always advertises very, very heavily in the newspapers. And in those newspapers, you find uh, products being uh, advertised which range from the most recent translation of a classical text to uh, adverts for, for instance, the most recent quack medicines being sold by a medical practitioner that range from, as it were, the high and the low. And, uh, and then you think about uh, Hogarth's own images, which are so densely packed with written inscription, increasingly. Uh, it's interesting. If you go from the Harlot's Progress to a Rake's Progress, one of the ways in which he makes this a sequel, it's, it's a classic sequel, by the way, a Rake's Progress. It's bigger. It's more spectacular than the one that went before it. And in many ways, it likes, you might say it's like Godfather 2. It's almost you know, it's better than the first one. But one of the things, and, and includes new inscriptions underneath every image compared to the first one. But text is flowing in. It's another, another form of kind of overlap, invasion of the energy and the animation that Claude is talking about, is that these are images which draw upon that older graphic tradition, actually, where where texts and images are understood in relation to each other. And he brings that right to the centre stage. He brings that into high, what he's into contemporary ambitious art. Whereas that idea of text and an image being very closely related to each other was the traditional purview of what were called the penmen. A penman was someone who was both very good at engraving imagery and reproducing imagery and also very good at engraving lettering. He brought those skills into ambitious contemporary art. And so his images, rather than uh, those produced by his contemporaries, are crowded with texts. And part of their pleasure is that uh, detailed uh, analysis of all those little texts that flood their way through his images and that give them that extra complexity. And I think that's actually part of a culture where you're not only getting a massive graphic imagery on the street, but also the newspapers, the, the, new, the new publications, as few, you know, kind of coming into this culture. Presumably, though, you can only get that, really, in the prints. You can't get that in the, in, in the oils. Um, so that, in a sense, you know, what, what you also have is that technical journey from apprentice through, through, through painter that is intention. No, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, it's fascinating the different role that text plays in his prints compared to his paintings. And also, of course, the legibility of, print, of, of text in his paintings is so much less. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and what you find when he does, turns them into prints, he adds more text to them because you can read them. Yeah. yeah. When, when I teach the 18th century, um, inevitably, depending on, on what the focus of the course is, it's always striking to me that when we get to Hogarth, um, there's a sense of relief in the room <laughs> that, my, <laughs> that my students um, relax in a certain way. And I think some of it responds to some of the points that we've been talking about, that, that there is this uh, kind of jigsaw puzzle of decoding, that one can keep going back to them and find these, this rich tapestry of detail. Um, or uh, that there's humor to be found. Mm. Another aspect, I think, that I pick up on for them or from them is that, that they're responding in part because there's an unusual sense of empathy. Um, and that's something that maybe we haven't touched on, and that's the kind of emotional tenor of, of much of the work. Uh, for me, as I say, empathy is a characteristic that I 
to find in many of the prints as well as in some of the paintings. You know, his portrait of Captain Coram, for example, is often uh, lauded for having an unusual degree of, of identification between painter and subject. Um, I think it's another reason why it's sometimes hard to talk about the prints with clear labels. You know, are they satires? Is he mocking his themes? Where does his emotional affinity lie? Because he at times does seem to be remarkably empathetic with the narratives he's telling. So I wonder if, if empathy is something maybe, Linda, you'd start here um, since you broached or touched around this a little earlier. Yeah, empathy, um, but also humanity. Uh, and I think, again, with the prince, this is what helps give them so many layers we've, we've we've talked about this earlier that you can't decide immediately or at all whose side he's on mm -hmm. because he humanizes everybody um i mean the if you look at the first image of the harlot's progress uh and at a certain level it's a tearjerker because here is this naive girl who's arrived from the country. She's never been to London before. And you see she's put down on the floor because she's terrified. She's in a, uh, an inn in swirling London. She's completely lost. And she's put down on the floor a basket in which there's a dead goose. And round the goose's neck is a label for my loving cousin. And the cousin was supposed to meet her so that she'd have somebody to pick her up and look after her. Instead, she's picked up by a brothel madam who takes her into a life of sin. Um, and you feel deeply sorry for her because she's been let down. Um, and... There's that level of empathy, which, which makes all these images deeply ambiguous. But there's also a humanity about Hogarth, and it's what makes, I think, also deciding his politics very difficult. I've already said he's very good with depicting women. But also, uh, and we've actually, it's, it's included in uh, the exhibition Over the Road, um, one of the astonishing paintings Hogarth does is of his six servants. Um, and it's an extraordinary image because it's... I mean, we don't know how representative it is, how naturalistic it is, but certainly these are working-class people um, painted with great dignity. And it's very, very rare to get a straight portrait of servants at that time. Uh, and the fact that Hogarth thought it was worth doing that um, perhaps tells us something. But then perhaps not, because some people <laughs> have looked at these servants and said, oh, yes, but look at these servants. They're not touching each other. I they're think that was me, wasn't it? <laughs> Probably. Uh, that they're separate. They're, they're all looking out 
of the painting. And some have said, yes, as though they're waiting for Hogarth to tell them each what to do. So it's you, it's you, you, you wicked person. Um, but you see, you can either see this painting as, okay, uh, a decent, civilised man, but there down there, and he, as a self-made man, is the employer. Or you can say, also, it's not one or the other, mm. that this is somebody recognising the humanity and the individualness of his servants. They're still servants, but they are different human beings as well. Um, and this is the empathy, this is the humanity, I think, which uh, does make Hogarth a winning figure to most of us. Oh, to, yeah. <laughs> to <laughs> all of us, I think. One, I mean, it's one other thing I wanted to bring up and ask what I'd be interested in, you know, what people think about is that Hogarth moves in, uh, in the early 1730s, after the great success of a harlot's progress, to Leicester, Leicester Square, Leicester Fields, and moves to a pretty smart house and, uh, and uh, exhibits then, thereafter, his, his series of paintings, including a rake's progress of four times a day, uh, and then prints after that, things like the Gin Lane and Beer Street, the Industry and Idolist, in his, in, his, in his very smart, elegant premises in Leicester Square. Right? And the people coming to look at those pictures in those smart premises are the affluent, the, well, you know, the, 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 the genteel, the polite. And I think what's the interest and the pleasure that the images themselves offer to those viewers, to those spectators? Uh, because he sell, it's not as if... He's, the other thing to mention, he sells his prints from his own premises. He doesn't sell them in print sellers around the city. And it's a, it's a rather exclusive whole transaction where you go to Hogarth's house in Leicester Square to encounter his images. And this relates to the sort of thing you were talking about, Tim, because it makes me wonder about whether the experiences or the, the, the narratives that he represents in his images were, would be something that most of his viewers have had any experience with whatsoever in their own lives. And so what I wonder is whether his, his series particularly offer his viewers a kind of a voyeuristic tour of the kind of the subcultures, the subterranean uh, uh, subcultures and criminal subcultures of the city. They take them, as it were, to parts of the city that they would never normally visit, they'd no- never normally encounter. And, and, and that, whole, um, that whole process of, as it were, going beyond behind closed doors, down into the cellars, in something like um, Industry and Islanders constantly, we're either in attics or cellars, we're not in the straight front room, is part of that process. And as, again, when one thinks about that, one thinks about how that might relate or have an al- analogies with what we do when we go and see a film, for instance, where we're following, for instance, a detective, the classic modern spy or satirical figure, as they were taking us into spaces and into narratives that are dark, that are criminal, but the we, sitting in the comfort of our own, in the cinema or in our front rooms, are experiencing only vicariously, only second-hand, from a very comfortable position. And I wonder whether the attraction and the interest of Hogarth's images of the city, of these tours he takes us of and through into these, into these different parts of the city, are partly related to that kind of experience. And, and to get back to, to the empathy issue, I mean, the, the, the thing that really gets me on that is um, actually the portrait of Sarah Malcolm, who was a multiple murderer. Um, she murdered a, an elderly woman and her two servants in a brutal way. Um, and, of course, Hogarth goes in in 1733, visits her in prison, and does what I've always found to be an incredibly sympathetic portrait. So that if you map that back onto his servants or you map that back onto um, um, you know, all of those characters in the corners of, of, of his prints, it strikes me that what you have is, is an ability to empathize that isn't judgmental in, 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 a, powerful, uh, in a powerful way. 
and that this is as close to real crime as you're going to get. And um, this is, you know, um, well, I don't know, I suppose it's flavella beans and, and all that in, in an 18th century context. It is interesting. I'm not, oh, I'm sorry, Claude. You... I'm not sure about that last one. I think she looks really mean. I think she looks hard. <laughs> I'm nasty. And yeah. isn't there some comment by Hogarth to this effect? Yeah, no, it's true. Um, On the other hand, the, I mean, the, the empathy issue arises, it seems to me, in a very interesting way, in a especially interesting way, in Gin Lane and Beer Street, where the, you have this stereotype contrast of this foreign drink, gin, which is ravaging uh, society and, and makes people behave in depraved, disgraceful, and miserable ways. And then you have beer, a good English drink that makes people jolly and happy. And if you look at, if you look at Gin Lane, it really is very, very grim indeed, and clearly a very biting kind of social critique on, on the state of society. I'm just wondering how much commiseration and pathos play a role in this picture nevertheless. And looking on the reverse side at the jolly bucolic beery uh, nationalist uh, portrayal of Beer Street, you have the man with a paunch in the middle who's very unappealing. And I wonder if there's a kind of empathy in the unappealingness itself, that there is a, a quality of sort of shabby humanity about him that is much more effectively empathetic, if you like, than would be a stereotype picture of a happy fat man. That there is a kind of... Um, dimension of nuanced human perception in Hogarth's mode of caricature that is part of empathy. For me, too, that goes back to the point I think you made earlier, that so often the noble characters are the ones who don't seem to be having any fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the ignoble characters may come to a really bad end that we wouldn't wish on ourselves, but in the meantime, they have had fun, yeah. <laughs> and that probably matters. Maybe this is a good moment to uh, open this out a little bit and see if there are uh, uh, themes, questions, comments, concerns from the floor, areas you'd like to take this we haven't yet taken ourselves. There is a microphone in the room um, that Julie will help to distribute. Um, if anyone does have a question. Yes, young woman in the middle. We need, we need actually you to speak because we're recording this and we won't get you otherwise. Okay. <laughs> Thank um, you. I'll make her even more afraid. <laughs> Sorry. Um, well, yes. I, I sort of want to return to the question of Hogarth as a satirist, of the, his own image of himself as a satirist, because I think there's this satiric tradition going back to classical times, you know, through the early modern period into the 18th century, of the satirist is implicated in his own work. And I think this was, this was brought up especially when you were talking about how he gave his affluent customers a glimpse into these sort of very lurid scenes, you know, but to have depicted them is to have seen them, and to have seen them is to have been implicated in them. And 
This reminds me especially of this episode of The Spectator in which the spectator is wandering through the streets and he comes upon this young prostitute who tries to get him to go home with her and he won't do it, but he still feels somehow responsible for her plight. And I was just wondering if you had any ideas about that. It's one for you. Um, I think, yeah, I think it has everything to do with that. I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to think about this. Uh, in comparison with Swift, where who seems to be in in the written medium, um, the writer who most completely and uncompromisingly exemplifies the idea that he's caught up in what he says about the human animal. I mean, the burden of of his satire is not that things are rotten because society is rotten, but that society is rotten because people are rotten. You just can't fix that. You can only palliate it. You can only live with it. You can only create conditions in which it is moderated uh, in some way. And I don't see Hogarth as having quite that kind of harshness of vision. Um, <coughs> but I, I'm very interested in the question because I don't see him quite belonging in the more comfortable camp of the Popes and the Fieldings and the Gibbons, where you, gentle reader, and he, the author, are together securing our, our values and not quite implicated in this mess. I mean, I think Hogarth has some of this. It may be that it's harder to define because he is visual and not verbal. Uh, but it's, it's a very important question. I mean, if we have to categorize these things, I think it becomes very difficult with Hogarth. Can I follow that up? I think, I think there's two things that might be interesting to mention. is whether that, the satirical perspective on Hogarth's part changes over his career. And it seems to me that by the time you get to Gin Lane and Beer Street and four stages of cruelty particularly there's a kind of an anxiety that, uh, there's a, there's a, there's a, and there's a, and there's a, it's interesting about the about Jin Lane actually you Claude's absolutely right there's there's very little empathy there whereas in earlier in the 30s four times of day you get that the family the homeless families sleeping out in the streets there's great empathy there as Linda was saying with Harlot it's really it's really subtle there's a certain kind of anxiety about what's happening to the city in those later in those later images, which actually which where the, the, the satire becomes it does become seemingly more moralistic and judgmental, and the empathy quotient, as it were, disappears. But it makes me also think about whether about about across a culture, across time, about moments when satire seems to be particularly powerful and relevant. And why, at this time, is it just that Hogarth, as this great genius, as it were, emerges, or whether satire was seen to be a really relevant and central art form at this moment, whereas later, in the 60s and 70s in the 18th century, before the emergence of... We talk about the emergence of Gilray and, 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 and Rawlinson in the, in the 1790s, but then you think, are these about moments of crisis in our culture? Even in modern, in modern Britain, um, you know, there's, there's mm-hmm. the, the, the satire cut craze of the 1960s, and then the satire that really emerged in, in the period of Thatcher, uh, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher's period in office, where the satire during the New Labour government was very feeble. It was, it was, it was very little satire about that. And interestingly, in contemporary England, satire seems to be emerging once again. And so it's an interesting idea that Hogarth satire is, 
it's seen as relevant because of a sense of crisis, a sense of, of lack of resolution. And I think that actually we've touched upon this over and over again about the sense of a, of a culture and a, and a society which hadn't quite, wasn't, was, in, was I mean, we always say about cultures being in flux, but was very self-consciously in flux, was self-consciously uncertain about, about class, about, about this rising middle class, about the city and about how it can be ordered. And, and, and at those moments of crisis, satire seems to come right to the fore. And it seems, it's no coincidence that you get this great moment of satire, whether it's with Swift and Pope and, and Hogarth in this period. And there seem to be other moments when satire doesn't seem to be quite so central as an art form. And I think the elephant in the room, actually, is religion. Uh, we haven't talked no. about Hogarth and religion and how that feeds into his satirical vision. Uh, because Hogarth, as far as we... I, I don't think Hogarth knows the classics, does he? So, uh, the, the, I mean, the classics could have given him a certain uh, take on satire, but certainly religion must have fed his satirical vision. And I think the religious side of Hogarth's art is often forgotten uh, or put to one side because of the stress on modernity and urban growth and middling classes and whatever. Um, but here is someone who is, after all, deeply Protestant, who's producing images of sin, death, and the devil, uh, who... Uh, uses images of the Ten Commandments in particular ways. But there's also a strong anti-clericalism in Hogarth's art, almost always when he represents clergymen. (laughs) The satirical vision uh, comes uppermost. But I don't think religion is satirised, but religious ministers often are, and religious people who seek to take advantage of religion are satirised. So I suspect that that's actually one vein of Hogarth, his images, his mind, which needs a lot more attention, the element of religion in his work. That that ties in, it seems to me, um, with the kind of ultimate question one might be asking that's at the heart of the issue uh, you've raised, and that is the extent to which Hogarth gives us the sense that in portraying depravity, he is or isn't suggesting, I'm also in this myself. Uh, With two great contemporaries, Swift and Johnson, you have writers who have what they often talk about as a secure Christian faith, a belief in even if the world is incorrigibly uh, depraved and life is bound to be unhappy, there is a happiness, an eternal happiness for the virtuous at the end. But both writers actually, in their intimate thoughts, record moments of doubt about that and actually ask God for forgiveness of those doubts. So they can't be guilty of doubting God since that's a product of of the reason he has given them, but they can't assuage those doubts and their duty is not to resolve them but to live on as if 
the doubts were not going to uh, have an influence on their conduct or on their uh, moral example uh, or uh, whatever. So that there is a kind of sense of inextinguished personal anxiety and guilt that in the case of a writer like Swift who may be unusual in this regard takes his satire freely into a sense of his own shortcomings this is not quite true of Johnson in the sense that he doesn't write much satire but is it true of Hogarth I assume that it might to some extent be I don't know how what the religious dimension of his thought may be and I don't know what we can recover in the absence of verbal media other questions in the room sir Uh, well, I'd better not go down the line, but uh, just a couple of things uh, coming out of what was said. Um, Linda, um, there's clearly a relationship between Hogarth and the Anglo-Dutch school, or, and many of the Dutch painters uh, whose works were so popular. But, I mean, uh, the use of porcelain and other expensive imported goods from the East Indies was very common in moral paintings amongst the Dutch. Very common indeed. Uh, and the other thing was that the Dutch, I mean, thinking of Jan Steen, for example, looking out of the painting is about complicity. There's a moral scene going on. Somebody is looking straight at you, drawing you into as a, a participant in this moral scene. Um, and it's just a standard trope. Um, and for Claude, I just want to say that the, the traditional position of the professor of medicine inner dissection is on high in the cathedra, in his chair, um, especially in Surgeon's Hall, where he has the surgeons to get dirty, uh, cutting up the body. Um, and we can be misled by Vesalius and by the very artificial Dutch commissioned guild paintings. Uh, generally speaking, the professors did not get their hands dirty. They have long pointers for that. Uh, some of the things that were said at the beginning about the society that produced um, these engravings and prints led me to uh, think of questions about audience, which I think have been partly answered as the discussion has gone forward. But it strikes me that a contradiction has perhaps emerged as to who the intended audience was, whether it was aristocratic or, or middle class. So I, I, I started off with some basic questions. Well, I mean, how many of these were produced? What would be the print run? What would be the cost? We were talking about this was a, a society where lots of money was sloshing around. And so who would have had the money to have bought them? Uh, are, are these images of London intended? We talked about all these print shops in London. You walk 20 yards down the road and you see another print shop. So are these images of London essentially intended for Londoners? Are they being distributed out to the countryside? The empire was invoked, so are, are they going further afield? Um, and so I was just wondering who he saw as his audience, or maybe he didn't have a vision of who his audience was and that didn't matter, but then well, who actually was the audience for we this? We know quite a lot about his audience, and his audience stretched from 
if I can answer this one, if that's okay. Mm. Uh, his audience seemed to... I mean, it depended on the media and the kind of object he's producing. So uh, uh, an image like Gin Lane uh, will obviously... Or you might not see... Will had a different imagined audience, possibly, or certainly, than a commissioned portrait or a commissioned conversation piece. But his, his, if we think of a kind of a staple audience, it, might, it would be described as, I think, this, um, this literate... Um, relatively affluent, middling community, plus aristocratic clients. Often aristocratic clients who in other forms of their patronage would have distinguished themselves for being interested in contemporary British art or for being a bit different to the kind of, um, following the kind of, um, the stereotypical aristocratic collecting practices that Linda described, which is very, very, which were very true for most patrons. But there are a number of pat- aristocratic patrons who distinguish themselves by their interest in contemporary British art, even if they also collected uh, um, uh, Italian and Dutch old master paintings. So my sense of it is that this is certainly one of the great, I think, um, the problems that, that, uh, that have, have dogged um, Hogarth scholarship is this sense that they're kind of populist or popular images in any, mod- in any way that we might recognise. Even something like, and I'm saying even, something like Gin Lane, sold as a, six, as a sixpence, as the cheapest of his prints, was still something that wasn't geared towards either culturally or, or economically to the poorest, certainly not to the people he was depicting in Gin Lane, right? Um, and so that was, that was, he was always aiming, as it were, towards a middling or an aristocratic clientele. And as I said, that varied according to the different kind of object he's producing. And then in terms of print runs, it's interesting. I was, I was, very, I was very struck going through the exhibition this morning that uh, some, uh, the caption to uh, Harlot's Progress says that this sold approximately 1,240. <laughs> I thought, that's, wow, if that's approximate, I'd love to know exactly how detailed you can get. You know, I thought, great, that's great. So that's the kind of number. But it's interesting, again, in, with the print, what would happen, just to talk about the mechanics, of sale, because I think you're right to bring this up, because we haven't really talked about that. With the Harlot's Progress, for instance, people would go to, the, go to uh, see the paintings on display, and then they would subscribe half, uh, uh, half the amount that was charged for the prints up front, and, so Hogarth, and it was done by subscription, and then they, once the prints were done, and sometimes the prints would only be in the process of being, uh, being made when the, the, the consumers would come to the, the showroom, and then they would, get the, they would get the final set, and then pay the second half of the... That's, and that was a rather common practice, especially in terms of literary production, but it was something that he, as part of this kind of entrepreneurial um, dynamic I was talking about, he brought into, into printmaking too. Well, how much is, is sixpence? I mean, it, it's 5% of a labourer's pay, I would think, wasn't it? Yeah, well, no, yeah, I mean, you could easily earn that in a day as a, as, as a labourer. Um, sixpence, six yeah. yeah. Um, and, I mean, you know, let's see, what would it be? Um, the, average, the average artisanal wage would be in the region of 21 shillings a week. Um, so, you know, that, that, it's, it's, it's quite... 50 pounds a year. Yeah. Um, if you're if you're doing well, yeah. Um, I mean, of course. Um, the other thing is, it all this kind of feeds into a broader culture anyway, and in the sense that you're being you're consuming it, whether or not you're buying it. And the, the example I always like is actually coming from um, uh, the Beggar's Opera, which we haven't um, discussed, but which of course Hogarth um, illustrates, where you, know, you get people standing, um, you know, describing themselves as a real Macheath, you know, in court. You know, these are highway robbers who are themselves modeling them, uh, modeling their own behavior and self-image on that. And of course, you know, when every time the, the, the Middlesex bench complains that every time the, uh, the Beggar's Opera is put on in London, the crime rate goes up. <laughs> um, <laughs> And they actually write to Garrick and plead, pleading with him not to put on a beggar's opera because it's going to ruin all of our lives. I think the significance of these prints at both ends 
both extremes of society are incredibly difficult, and, and this obtains throughout the, the 18th century. That, I mean, it is possible for somebody poor, if they're in London, if they're passing a print shop, which has a print in the window, and they happen to notice it, it is possible for somebody without paying to see these images. How many did? How will we ever know? Uh, also, some of these images are put up in coffee houses and in taverns. They are referred to probably in cheaper drawings that have not survived. I mean, the, 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 there's all sorts of cross-fertilisation. So there's a lot of question marks there. But it seems to me there's a lot of question marks at the, at the very top. Um, I mean, what is the politics of this? And we haven't really talked about the politics, the, the satirical vision uh, that Hogarth and his contemporaries and people who come after him afford of the powerful, the aristocrats, the politicians, the monarchs. Um, and it's always tempting, I think, to infer that the uninhibited nature of some of this graphic <coughs> satire and the fact that it's apparently allowed, uh, indicates that 18th century Britain, okay, was oligarchical, unequal, but there was a kind of rollicking openness about it. And you, 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 you get that interpretation of the 18th century in certain scholars, you know. Uninhibited, they told it as it was, okay, an unequal society, but in the end there was liberty. Well, possibly, or it could be that precisely because the circulation of these images was a limited one, um, that the politicians and the powerful let it be. And we have conflicting evidence of this. I think it's the Duke of Newcastle. Uh, again, you will probably know who is down saying, you know, I don't understand these prints. I, I don't know what they mean. But I think he, he goes on to say, but, but they do have an effect. And one wishes he would have gone on further and explained, well, okay, what effect? You know, please tell us. But I, I think that because we know a bit about circulation, but we don't know that much, and because it's impossible usually to reconstruct cases of the act of looking and what people felt when they looked, it's very, very difficult, I think, to, to judge the contemporary, the precise contemporary audience and the, con the range of contemporary response to these extraordinary images. I wanted to make a little point to connect it back to the, you know, his interest in the Copyright Act, and that is, of course, that it, it's not incidental that a part of the reason he was pursuing this was to try to maintain his prices, uh, and that he only lost control of that, as I recall, after his lifetime, when the prints were uh, restruck and prices dropped. Uh, and then presumably they did begin to find a wider uh, socioeconomic market at that point. So he's very rich now. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting to talk, I mean, just not anecdotally, but it's, it's fascinating about the methods through which people initially, with the Harlot's Progress, when they saw the success of the Harlot's Progress, 
and the rake actually before that, uh, before uh, as that was being displayed, how this this copying and this plagiarism took place. That print seller, print publishers would send in engravers to pretend to be buyers or to pretend to be interested in in Hogarth's images, and basically commission these guys to uh, just look carefully at the images and go back to the workshop and then produce these remembered images uh, or remembered versions of the pictures that they'd seen back in Hogarth's uh, uh, studio, and they survive. And so you get this very weird, you look at these images which are obviously remembered images, not direct copies, because of course if Hogarth seen anyone directly copying uh, his prints or paintings in the, in the studio or in the, work, in the showroom, he would, have been, he would have kicked them out. So you get this kind of weird, these weird images which are kind of slightly like blurred, like slightly drunken uh, versions of the originals because they're all built on memory. One of the other aspects of this uh, issue of the promulgation of the images that I love is, of course, when they start showing up in other media, when they're put on porcelain punch bowls, for yeah. example, so that you're literally drinking punch out of a bowl that's been embellished with a scene from one of the progresses. Including the modern, modern conversation as well. <laughs> yes, the gentleman toward the back. I've been uh, thinking about um, Mark Hallett's suggestion that there's a correlation, generally speaking, between satire and crisis. Um, and that certainly seems plausible. Um, but I wonder if the crisis that is being felt in the 18th century, uh, I wonder if it really can be described as the rise of the middle class, which, of course, we all know to laugh at because, as uh, Linda says, it's always rising. Um, I think it's more a matter of the rise for the first time of class consciousness and, uh, and therefore of a consciousness that correlates with a transformation in ideas of what the proper categories are for describing society and, and different groups in society. In other words, it's the transition from a status to a class understanding of what is the most important divider between groups which obviously has a great deal to do with the financial revolution and with what we, with hindsight, could call capitalist ideology, which permeates uh, the century, although not with any suddenness. I wondered um, how much Hogarth uh, is reacting, among other things, uh, in his satire to that, to that phenomenon, uh, the degree to which money and wealth and the possession of money is becoming a major and, to some degree, normative standard of judging human beings. I, what, well, earlier on, we were discussing Hogarth and modernity, and it struck me that at the time that what was really interesting was that he himself used the term modern and modernity, and what he understood it to be, well, and as far as I read it, is actually a transition from a 17th century style of parish government and community that's in, in, in embedded within a religious narrative and is, is embedded within a notion of community as an organic thing. And you go back, basically this is just beer and skittles, and parish feasts, and the um, ceremonial round of the year in the city. And it's a very specific kind of place. It's, it is the city of London, a traditional, um, a traditional city that, whose, whose ceremonies go back to a medieval past. And that the modernity that he counterposes to that is not simply about money, 
although money is absolutely central to it and a, a, um, a, a form of capitalism is central to it, but it's also about a bureaucratic state that takes the organization of local government and the organization of society out of the hands of these tiny, legitimated um, communities, parish communities that met and feasted every, um, every, every, um, every few months and gives it instead into the hands of well, people who run workhouses and, um, and, 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 and Whitehall and, and large corporations and, and, and all the rest of it. That, in a sense, the critique is both, works both at that large scale of the changing nature of finance, but also at the very small scale of the cityscape which he's depicting. I mean, I think that Hogarth certainly knows about capitalism um, and certainly the anxieties of capitalism hit him directly. I mean, his father uh, loses all his money, ends up in, in prison uh, as a debtor. Um, and it's one aspect of the commercial revolution that uh, England is going through at this time. You can focus on the positive aspect, the growth of new businesses, the rise of money, the rise of the middling class. But uh, the more that this economic creativity is happening, the more risks and failures uh, you're getting as well. Uh, and Hogarth knows this, as I say, personally. But I think the other... I mean, there's so many sources of anxiety that he's living through... Uh, which we mustn't forget. And, oh, and, and I suppose the, the other thing I should say is his extraordinary satires and engravings on the South Sea bubble, which I think are some of the most remarkable images that Hogarth produced, uh, these images of strange people on the moon uh, as, as the whole economic system of the country seems to go in complete disarray. And that's a, a remarkable image, I think, that needs a lot more explication. But there's also terrific anxiety that Hogarth's living through uh, about the political system, uh, threats to the ruling dynasty, which has only just come in in 1714, and its grip on power often looks insecure. Um, war. Um, you know, this is a, a, a polity that we know is going to be the richest place on the globe by 1800. But they didn't know that. It could easily have collapsed into civil war. Uh, and that, that thought is never far away from people of Hogarth's generation because there had been a civil war, in a sense two civil wars in the 17th century, and everybody remembers that. Uh, so all sorts of sources of anxiety, I think, uh, he's living through. Modern is, is, and we should be alert to this, I think perhaps more than it, you know, it would be natural for us to be, is, is often a dirty word in this period, as in all periods. But, but it, it uh, ties in, I mean, it clearly is a sarcastic term in, in the title of that print, and it ties in not only with social tensions between the moneyed and the landed classes and, and, and the rest, which I suspect have always existed. I mean, the, the moneyed classes are always trying to push into to the, uh, uh, to the aristocracy, uh, which needs the money and, and resents the fact and 
it's very accentuated in the 17th and 18th centuries, but I guess it's how society moves and why the middle classes have always been rising from, from day one. But there is also a um, particularly uh, strongly felt cultural anxiety about the displacement of certain classical standards of taste and value and the big European quarrel of the ancients and moderns, which presumably was going on since as far back as the 18th century, is, is not dead, though the moderns are slowly winning. Uh, it's what the Dunciad is about. It's what a lot of 17th and 18th century satire is about. And satire is essentially a very conservative genre, resistant to the modern. I would guess that in terms of culture wars, Hogarth would be more on the modern side than the ancient side in his, for instance, his clear opposition to Palladian uh, symmetries and, and his hatred of the Burlington Circle uh, and so on. A last question from the floor? Yes. Thanks. Um, just to go back to religion, um, I'm very glad you mentioned civil wars. And picking up on, I, I don't really know how this plays out in Hogarth, but there's one thing you can say about Dutch representations of common people in the later 17th century. They, they often represent enthusiasts as people who are out of control of their bodies. In other words, the claim for the direct presence within one of the Holy Spirit is a mistake, as Jonathan Swift tells us too. Um, it's a mistake for gross bodily urges. Um, now, it seems to me that, and correct me if I'm wrong, Hogarth doesn't play with that very popular football. And he's, he's, he's common people um, are corpulent in, in different ways. And it, the, the category that that strikes me is sympathy, which has been running throughout the discourse this afternoon. Um, and there's a phrase uh, in my head, um, a, a sentence. I, I, I did some work in and around Hogarth years ago, right at the, at the, the, the latter end of what I really know about. Um, and, it was, and I don't know whether it was Hogarth or somebody else, but saying um, it, it is possible for the working man to have taste. After all, um, we trust the baker to make our bread taste good, to put enough salt in it. Um, and perhaps someone on the platform can remember accurately who that was. But it, it does seem to me that something has really shifted when um, the representation of the populace um, as um, uh, misdirected, uh, misdirected religion... Um, changes and, and, and it becomes one of sympathy. That's quite remarkable. I mean, there is one very striking image of Hogarth basically attacking all modes of religious enthusiasm uh, and different... It's in the show. Yeah. Yes, yeah. different bodies completely taken over by 
uh, different kinds of fanaticism, Methodism, the woman who uh, it was believed for a while by various experts could give birth to rabbits. Um, you know, and they're all crowded into this one frame. But he, he also does a single version of Mary Toft giving yeah. birth to rabbits. <laughs> and the, per, the people who are, of course, being satirized are, 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 do not include Mary Toft herself. No. They no. include all the doctors and, um, and elite figures around her um, confirming the, um, the existence of conies running across the floor. Uh, yeah. That's right. Um, uh, about sympathy... It is uh, a very important issue, I think. And, um, of course, just to fill in the picture, as it were, you know, the, the most famous uh, instance and example and representation of sympathy, or one of them, at least, is, the, is all the imagery that uh, he was involved in organising and producing for the Foundling Hospital, which is built around the narratives of sympathy, you could say. So, again, I mean, the, the thing that... Um, what, I mean, just from my point of view, and I, I know you are going to ask for summaries, James, but this is one... It's, I mean, it's... Remember, it's kind of a, not a plea, but a suggestion that we might that we might remember, um, or we have to remember, that um, that the kind of imagery that's in the Firestan is one strand or one category of Hogarth's uh, imagery. He is also producing, as Linda says, portraits of the, uh, of the great clerics of the day, even as he's, he's attacking them in some of his satires. He's producing painting history paintings for the hospitals, including and, and, and the founding hospital, as well as, uh, as as the kind of satirical art that we're that we're looking at. And I mean, I was involved in this exhibition at the Tate a few years ago, where it was structured around the, the sense that as you went from one gallery to another, you'd suddenly be encountering a very different Hogarth. And that, and because and we get a, we get an astonishing and, and and in many ways a central image of Hogarth in this in this display. Because what he has remained most famous for, and properly, I think, is his great satire. Um, but it's one strand. And the, the, the challenge, in many ways, is to think about how those different things relate to each other beyond media, you know, beyond thinking about printmaking and painting. But think how... And, and because he does suddenly become much more fragmented when you see him doing one thing in one, one genre and a very different thing in another. It becomes even more difficult to work him out. Now, I... Uh, offered you the opportunity for any <laughs> concluding remarks, uh, stray thoughts, uh, last words. I won't require that of you, <laughs> but would any of you wish to offer something further before we adjourn? No, I think people <laughs> should go and look at the images. Hogarth would have wanted this. Yeah. <laughs> well... As an objects person, I will only second that and encourage all of you to uh, join us at Firestone Library, uh, both to enjoy a reception and to enjoy looking. Thank you very much. And thank you to all of our speakers.